Hello there. This is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat, episode 103. Today is Wednesday, August 27th, 2014, not July of 2004. I am your lovely and loyal host, Luke Thomas. Uh, today on the docket, we have, let's see, uh, UFC 177 this weekend, the rematch between TJ Dillashaw and Henan Barrow. We have the two UFC fight nights from over the weekend, one in China, one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, <laughs> worst place in America. Um, let's see, what else do we have? We have 1FC on Friday morning, Ben Askren returns. We have a wide variety of other issues, as we always do by the time these Wednesday chats roll around. So, uh, your questions, your comments, they'll get answered on a post dedicated uh, on MMAfighting.com. Comments that turn green get priority, although not exclusivity. Quickly, announcements up front. We are on iTunes. We are on Stitcher. We are on SoundCloud. For everyone been asking, when are you going to be on iTunes? We are on iTunes. It's there. It's ready. Please go and subscribe. If you'd be so kind, leave a nice review. I'd appreciate that. Um, and, of course, if you use Stitcher for your mobile app, get on Stitcher. It's all there. It's all ready. You've got no excuse anymore. When the podcast is over, when this episode is over, I will, of course, embed the MP3 in a SoundCloud, uh, SoundCloud I should say, um, on this post, and of course, if you want all the updates, how to get everything, where is everything going and coming, blah, 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 follow me on Twitter at SBMLukeThomas. You may also email me at Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. All right. As you can see, Hala Madrid. I got my Real Madrid jersey on, but not just any Real Madrid jersey. Let's see if I can... Get a, uh, can you see? Can you see? Hames, fool. <laughs> the original... I got this thing the day the transfer was announced, man. Cost me a million dollars, but I got it. All right. Without further ado, uh, let's get this bad boy going, shall we? Let's do it. Not too many announcements. I got in and out in like two minutes. All right. Up first, Luke. Will Jake Ellenberger become a excuse me become purely a gatekeeper if he loses against Gastelum? Um, purely a gatekeeper. Well, he as it stands now, he is ranked, I believe. Eighth in the division, yeah, that's right. Um, and on a two-fight losing streak, albeit to two guys who are um, well, one's definitely getting a title shot, and the other is likely to get a title shot. That being Robbie Lawler and Rory McDonald. So, uh, not the shabbiest of losses to have. But the problem with the word gatekeeper is that no one really defines what it means because you can be a gatekeeper at different levels of the game. You can be a gatekeeper on the regional scene, and the guys who beat you eventually move on to the pro to the higher end of the professional ranks. You can be a gatekeeper in terms of keeping guys out of the top ten. You can be a gatekeeper in terms of if they can beat you, they can get a title shot. So, so that so the problem is we never say what it means, but people always, you know, it's like a it's like a graduated word for journeyman, which is really not fair, you know. Gatekeeper does not mean loser. Gatekeeper does not mean ineffectual. Gatekeeper does not mean um, simply unable to advance in their career. Like, oh, actually, it doesn't to some extent. But you can still have a very productive, high-level, elite career and be a gatekeeper. The two are not mutually exclusive. So when you say gatekeeper, it depends what you mean. You mean keeping guys out of that top five region? Yeah, probably so. You can't beat top five guys, it seems like. You know, beating Nate Marquardt and Jay Huron is very, very good, but that's not enough. Beating Diego Sanchez, and he was getting bombed on that third round, you know, it's very good, but it's not enough. Jake Shields coming off a loss to his father. Jake Shields, where is he now? So he puts together an impressive run and a great resume, um, but he does have an issue about 
meeting top five guys. It's not a thing he's really capable of doing, at least it seems so far. So, should he lose to Kelvin Gastelum, by the way, who is outside of the top ten, um, that would be a referendum on who he could beat. Maybe you can argue he can't even beat, well, he can't beat guys in the top ten, but he would be the guy you would beat to get into the top ten, maybe. Right, that's sort of where he would be, and that's not where he wants to be. He wants to be the guy who is, as he says quite clearly, in the sport for one reason, to contend for a title, and if he can't, he doesn't want to be here. I don't know what that means for his future. Perhaps that's why we saw him in the broadcast booth. I don't know. Not broadcast booth, I should say, analyst table. Um, but when you say gatekeeper, you kind of have to specify what it means. It doesn't mean anything, or at least it means very little on its own. It has to be accompanied by what gate they are guarding. There are series of them and concentric circles all the way to the title, and there's gatekeepers at all the various different levels. Um, so always, whenever you use the term, always specify what that means and what the context is of gatekeeping. Which gate are they guarding? Uh, Pay-per-view numbers, the fans' end game. You often say that as a fan, one should not be concerned with the business side of the UFC. Well, I don't think you should not, but you're not required to be. While I agree with this, I am not sure why then we obsess so much over pay-per-view numbers to the, the degree that we do. With the Cormier-Jones shove and subsequent explosion of internet traffic, are we simply happy that this single UFC event will draw half a million casual fans who may not watch another event all year to be expected to gain more hardcore fans? Is this increased exposure going to bring better talent into the sport? You have acknowledged that the sport is not in any immediate or serious trouble, and it's fairly clear that there is a significant fan base that will watch pretty much anything with the UFC ban on it. So what is our end game? If we were to have less, more talent-rich shows, we would for sure get more bang for a buck. But is that all a fan should want? Um, that's all I think a fan should want. I mean, listen, there are also different kinds of fans. And not simply that binary of hardcore, non-hardcore, or at least non-hardcore casual. There are all kinds of fans run a spectrum about how invested they are and what they're interested in and what's value to them. As a person in the media, the reason why you want to pay attention to television ratings and pay-per-view draws and things like I do, like internet traffic, is it sort of tells you, number one, who's popular and who's not. And it kind of gives you an indication of why. It tells you where people are popular, how they're popular, why, you know, in the case of search, I can, get, I can tell you um, what terms are hitting, where they're coming from, how long they're staying on the site, where they're going afterwards that kind of thing. And in terms of pay-per-view numbers, um, that tells you what's valuable as a commoditized product. It, it, as it tells you um, who people care about. It gives you an indication of where they are within the media ecosystem in terms of priority. So, so those things are kind of important. But the other thing about numbers, and this is the case I've made, and whether or not fans care about it is up to them, but if, they, if fans care about numbers, television ratings, pay-per-view draws. They do so on the basis that that topic is of interest to them. In other words, you are not just a consumer of um, the iPhone. I, I think the iPhone is a trash phone, by the way, but if, if you have an iPhone, maybe you just care about, hey, I just like my iPhone. It's really simple. I can FaceTime with my family. I've got, um, you know, uh, I got Waze because their Maps app is a disaster, but you know, whatever. It's This is what I like. This is my phone. This is what I use. Okay, fair enough. But there are a legion of Apple fans who want to know what the company is doing next and every iterative update to Siri and how much the money ha the company has invested and um, patent issues versus Samsung and they're sort of invested in a different side and I think they like it on those terms. Um, those are, that's that, that's politics for them. It's a it's a it's an aspect of the business that is of entertainment to them to follow. Not strictly entertainment. There's a certain edification that comes with following things like that, but that's their that's their interest. That is not my interest necessarily, although I do enjoy consuming it on those terms a little bit as well. For me, uh, 
in addition to the reasons I've already mentioned, one of the reasons why you want to pay attention to pay-per-view numbers and live gate receipts and television ratings is because it keeps promoters honest. Right? Um, to the extent you have that information, you can make judgments about whether uh, an event or a business or an effort or whatever the case may be is successful or not. And of course, defining success is in of itself not an automatic thing. There are certain ways to look at it, but nevertheless, numbers can be so high or so low as to really tell you a fair amount. The problem with most numbers is that most numbers individualized television ratings for that day or that event, television ratings for the next event, pay-per-view buys for that event. Sometimes they just don't really tell you a whole lot. And I think fans sort of say, well, if these numbers don't tell us a whole lot, then why are we invested in them? Number one, sometimes the numbers do tell you a lot. All right, that's the first thing. Second, um, even if in, an individual event sort of comes in as expected, I, I would say uh, the Bader versus St. Prue numbers, you know, uh, the mid 700,000s on a Saturday night on, on um, UFC, um, Fox Sports 1 rather, those are just sort of basically what UFC does on a Saturday evening, which makes the reason why they did poorly last Saturday kind of surprising. But um, it's, it's the, you're measuring the totality. You're measuring the larger picture there. You're measuring things individually when they stick out and also what the general pattern tells me. The general pattern tells me that for Fox Sports 1, the numbers that the UFC does are very reliable for the network, but I have a general existential question about whether or not gaining 750,000 viewers on average for a broadcast is enough to then buoy a pay-per-view product. That is sort of my basic question. My basic question is how many numbers on average do you need to do to then promote a product uh, like this? Maybe the answer is a million. Maybe the answer is 500,000. Maybe the answer is 2.5 million. I don't know what the answer is exactly. I think that's a healthy debate you can have. But my general hunch is that um, without going too far in one direction, part of the oversaturation debate is that there are too many shows. The other problem is that they are promoted on a relatively weak network. Um, and again, an understandably weak network, not a bad network, right? I mean, Fox Sports 1's brand new. The program gets better by the day. Um, it's, I, I like it. It's, I enjoy it. But it's still, it's got, in terms of ratings, it's work cut out for it. So um, I think that's a bit of a problem. The other thing you mentioned, though, is like, well, we'll do these big events. What do they really get? Number one, they get the athletes more money. That, to me, matters. Maybe it doesn't matter to you. It matters to me. Um, number two, when the sport has wider exposure, Maybe an individual one event, it's really sort of hard to calculate that as a particular game changer. But when you can have a series of high events like that, um, it does expand the sports reach. It does create new fans. How were you created? Were you created off a Fight Pass show? Probably not, you know, unless you went to it. Um, many things create fans going to an event by accident. It could have just been a regular fight night. It could have been a random fight. You come to the sport in many different ways. But it is true, though, that those big events, those become memorable moments. And in the case of Cormier Jones, this is a moment that is the best the sport has to offer. You want to give that to as many people as possible. If you're, gonna, if you're going to display your sport in a way that you should, with the two best fighters arguably in the sport, irrespective of weight class, and again, maybe not necessarily, but they're up there, two guys that are basically undefeated for the UFC's arguably most prestigious title, um, with two guys who are elite athletes and elite technicians, um, that you, you want to make sure that gets noticed. And when you do that, you stand the very strong likelihood of either entrenching fan sentiment or creating new fans in the process. More eyeballs are looking, the chance that many will just go away again, many more will stay. 
but that you're not going to create I mean, this idea that like I challenge the UFC's um, logic. They're like, well, what really creates fans is I think they said this was you know a consistent presence on 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 network television, you know, consistent amount of shows in front of fans' faces. And from a live event perspective, globally, I can see why they would say that. But domestically speaking, having a constant series of shows does exactly the opposite. It creates it creates um, what a white noise effect, unfortunately, and these big moments of peaking is what really gets people to turn their heads. Best all-around athletes in the UFC. Boy, you'd have to say Hector Lombard, um, George St. Pierre, Daniel Cormier, um, Jose Aldo, maybe Mighty Mouse. Alex Garcia, if he can get his cardio fixed. Um, who else is a really good athlete? John Jones is a really good athlete, although not in the same way. Um, Cain Velasquez. Let me look at this list. I got the rankings up. Those are the ones that come to mind. How about the very best athletes? Um, there's some very, very good ones. Edson Barboza. You know, just speaking pure athleticism. Uh, Joseph Benavidez. Uriah Faber, although he's a little bit older, obviously. Names like that. But as you know, athletics, you can see how the relationship... Oh, Yoel Romero. Um, Jacques Array. Phil Davis. Even Ryan Bader's a very good athlete. Uh, yeah, that's what I would say. But you can see that the relationship between high-level fighting and high-level athleticism, while it is very close, um, it, it, there's something about fighting that reward... All sports reward athleticism, right? Particularly a sport like football where being, pardon the overwrought usage of the term, but being athletic and being explosive, particularly in football, American football, is really, really important, right? Being able to get off the line of scrimmage if you're a wide receiver and running a route and hitting everything on time when you're supposed to be on your tree and things like that. That's really, really important, you know? Um, those are the best guys have that. And so I think football really rewards athleticism in a very direct way. And so does, so does, so does MMA, but a little bit less so. You don't have to have necessarily that kind of elite athleticism to, to get ahead. Um, it doesn't always reward you directly. Brock Lesnar, if he, if he still fought, I would say. Let's see, UFC 177 versus UFC Fight Night Connecticut. Luke, wanted to get your thoughts on what you see, would rather spend money on both cards. So UFC Fight Night Connecticut, which would be September 5th. Dude, September 5th is going to be balls out crazy. I didn't realize this. I did know that it was obviously UFC that night, and of course 10 miles away is Bellator. It's also Lion Fight. <laughs> So like if you're a real combat sports head, you know, and you like real Muay Thai, um, that's going to be a crazy night for you. They're actually, can you believe this? Not too far from here. If you know anything about DC, right near the Verizon Center, there's a bar called RFB. It's like a mix between a sports bar and like a craft brew bar. Um, Chocolate City Beer, which is in my neighborhood, they opened, they had their like debut uh, party there. Anyway, you go and watch Caps games there if you can't get into the Verizon Center. They're having, I'm not kidding, they're having a lion fight viewing party on Friday night. Can you believe that? I, I was shocked, man. RFD. If you're if you live in the DC area, check it out. RFD, right near um, right near Verizon Center, next to Fado Fado, across the street from Hooters. 
Of course, if you can tell by mentioning these names, that area of bars sucks, but hey, lion fight out in public, that's kind of fun, right? Uh, all right, so UFC Fight Night Connecticut. Jacare versus Musasi, Overeem Ben Rothwell, Mitrione versus Derek Lewis. Goddamn, that's going to be crazy. Joe Lazan, Michael Chiesa, Nick Lentz, Charles Oliveira, John Moraga versus Justin Scoggins. Dude, that main card is the truth. Woo! That is a good main card. UFC 177 by contrast, Dillashaw Baral, Ferguson Castillo, Betch Cohea versus Shannon Baszler, Nijem versus Fajera, and Yancey Medeiros versus Damon Jackson. First of all, that fight night card is superior. But also recall that some of those pieces of that Fight Night card came from a pay-per-view event, at least certainly in the case of this main event, which was the co-main event previously. Um, listen, the problem with 177, I think now that we have these tiered system of cards, I mentioned this before, one of the problems that UFC faces is that they, they haven't really clearly differentiated the, the, the two. I mean, you can see the difference between like a, like a decent Fight Pass card and a really good pay-per-view. The differences there are pretty dramatic, but all the space in between, it kind of floats. And this card was, you know, it was partly picked apart. The main event was moved to 178. We don't know what happened, and Medeiros and Jackson got bumped up because uh, a lot of stuff happened, or whatever the case may be, but... Um, the problem with 177 is not that the card is bad as such. You look at it and you're like, oh my god, this is the worst card ever. The problem is you're measuring it against what the UFC is asking you to do. What the UFC normally asks you to do is weigh your opportunity cost. It, you, we're, we're asking you to spend a Saturday evening watching this content, in most cases uh, for free on television, either for Fox or Fox Sports 1 or Fox Sports 2, sometimes Fight Pass, but you get the idea. And you say, is it worth my time to sit down and watch? And because it's free and because it's easy to do, or because maybe you can DVR it, these are things that you might be more willing to make. And, and because it's a title fight, if this aired on Fox Sports 1, you'd be like, this is, this is not a bad card. I'll, I'll do that on Saturday night. It's because you're measuring it against what the BOC is now asking you to do, which is jump behind a paywall for it, and the kind of paywall that they would ask you for any other card that is much better than this typically in that space. That's basically the inherent problem here. It's, when we talk about card quality, you, it's, the, you have to measure it against the costs the UFC asks you, both financial and opportunity. Uh, in both those cases apply to pay-per-view and fight pass, more or less. And so, and so under those terms, the card is absolutely dreadful. On in terms of its own, in another format, it's actually not so bad. Um, how you feel about it is... You know, I can't imagine. I, I honestly like if this clears a hundred thousand, I would consider that a success, to be honest. And I can't believe I'm saying that in 2014 about um, a UFC review product, but there we are. I'm saying it. Um, so that that's the issue. Uh, and Fight Night Connecticut, this is what I'm talking about. You have a Fight Night card again, partly picked up some beneficial pieces of a canceled UFC pay per view that to make it a spectacular card for free TV against a pay-per-view that, you know, the, the card is, with the exception that it has a title fight, incontestably worse. Have I seen the BJJ Scout breakdown of Rory versus Woodley? Not only have I seen it, I included it in my predictions post. Um, if you don't watch BJJ Scout and the stuff he does, and a lot of it is, you know worm guard um, transitions to the back or, you know, how to break worm guard or, you know, check out this De La Hiva sweep with no hands, stuff like that. You won't be too much interested in it, but he takes a lot of his understanding of the mechanics of the game 
gets help from those who have a really crisp understanding of striking and does really excellent technical breakdowns. You, you, you absolutely must watch it, anything he does. Subscribe to him on YouTube, follow him on Twitter, Instagram, whatever you need to do, that's the key to making sure you understand much more about this fight game. And by the way, shout-outs to the um, Dan Hardy analysis on for UFC 177 that he did with um, the other gentleman uh, whose name escapes me now, who is the commentator for um, the, the uh, play-by-play guy for the Fight Pass shows in England, um, or Europe anyway. In any event... Um, just did a sensation. They both did a sensational job. It was, it was four minutes of filler at front, but when they got to the analysis, it was actually really good. That kind of stuff is just really important for your understanding of the game. And the more you do that over time, the better you become. Is in terms of that's why like people tell me, oh, you know, fighters are better than they've ever been. Why don't people appreciate that? Well, people do appreciate that, but fight fans are also much more educated now. Um, the game has gotten better, but fans have gotten better in understanding the game. So everything rises, you know, concurrently. Uh, is the low viewership for Henderson Dos Anjos fight a direct result of the UFC making Macau a much bigger priority? Um, it's really hard to say. I was very surprised because my initial thought was going to be, well, the fight, the main event ended in the first round. Had it gone five rounds, the ratings would have been much better, but that's not the case. The the fight peaked, uh, or I should say the ratings peaked and then dropped off before the main event had even started. So that may have not changed anything at all. You want it to rise over the course of a card. Um, and, you know, Bellator cards on Spike do that. Most cards from UFC on, on Fox Sports 1 do that. I don't know. I've heard a lot of competing theories. One is that the pacing of these Fox Sports 1 cards are dreadful. And I understand that. Um, I've been told, although I can't confirm this is the case for Fox Sports 1, that when you have so many commercials and it goes so long, it can be an intentional thing to keep people longer because these cards, the ratings rise over the course of the card. Um, it can also be that they have to put in those extra commercials because the ratings aren't high enough to match what they sold advertisers at. In other words, if you sell um, a rating spot at a certain price and um, the ratings don't match that, you have to reward the purchaser of the ads by filling in more space over the course of a live broadcast. It could be that as well. So um, maybe the pacing is the issue. Um, I'm not ready to give up on the idea that Henderson is not a draw, though. I just wonder if Dos Anjos is one of these guys where he is strictly, I mean strictly, a hardcore phenomenon. And you would say, well, who is Rustam Havilov, you know? I don't know. It's a tough argument to make. I just don't buy the idea that one guy can go up to 1.2 million by accident on, on a fight night card. That, that, to me, seems very difficult to, to absorb. But maybe it could be fatigue that, you know, you had this so many cards in a row where, um, you know, uh, fans may just not know who these guys are. I think that's a big problem. You have card after card after card if you're a casual fan watching on Fox Sports 1, not knowing who these guys are. Even even dedicated fans of mixed martial arts have to look these guys up the day, the week of the event or the day of the event. But to, to be honest, it's very, it's really difficult. I, I, I was ready to come on here and be like, well, it was the, the main event wasn't five rounds. That actually is not the problem. Um, I will say, though, that what I found funny was that, for example, part of my job... This is something I kind of messed up on, actually, that I'm pissed at myself for. Not the end of the world. But so if the UFC does, let's say, a Fox Sports 1 show, part of my responsibilities or someone's responsibility on the site, depending on who's running it, is to make sure that we get the highlights up that either go up on the UFC's YouTube channel or Fox Sports 1's YouTube channel or even Fox Sports um, on their own proprietary player and get those 
rating, uh, not ratings, get those uh, highlights up on the site. You'll see them after the thing. You know, all the major sites do it. Um, so that's one thing. This, the other part I would say though is that, uh, well, here's my point. You can find those for your Fox Sports One shows. You can find those to some extent for your pay-per-views, although they make you know some stuff is guarded. But you get the idea. They're available for the Fight Pass shows. There's typically nothing there. There's typically nothing there. And actually, for this one, um, ESPN did highlights for it, and I and I never thought they would, and I didn't realize that they had, and I missed that. Um, that kind of tells you something. I had never seen that for a Fight Pass show before, and I can also tell you that when I was able to tell, the traffic for the Fight Pass show was better. Now, the Fight Pass show had Michael Bisping on. A lot of fans noted that, hey, it came on in the morning. It was a really good time for folks in England. He's a bit of a draw over there. That could affect it. I agree. Um, and, of course, you know, 9 a.m. is not great for the U.S., but it's good enough to get your hardcore fans probably up. There was a fair amount of chatter about it. By the time he fought, it was like, what, closer to 11 a.m.? Something like that. So... So there's reasons why the traffic may have been good, but you know, beating that on a Saturday, beating that versus a Saturday night, you know, seems kind of crazy on a you know on a national network, seems kind of crazy. But but there we are. Uh, I was surprised at how well that Five Pass card did. But I think my my major takeaway is that Five Pass needs to be much better as a service before UFC is ready to go all in, a la WWE Network. But I can see the I the I can see the vision for the future. I can I can feel it. Um, I was worried that if they'd go on there, it just wouldn't translate into this traffic for us as a business, and it actually does um, under the right circumstances. And you name five things you would rather do than watch WrestleMania while listening to Face the Pain. Be brutal, please. Yeah, um, yeah, lots of plus ones on that, so I'll just say I'd rather get a prostate exam. How about that? Hits. All right. How do you see Jacare versus Musasi going? Uh, Jacare, I think, controlling the takedown and not getting upkicked this time. Uh, how would Prime Fedor do against top 10 heavyweights of today? I think pretty damn well, but he, he just wouldn't be Kane. Although you never know, it could crack him on the jaw. Um, Bouchesha versus Barnett and Metamoris. Who wins? Bouchesha. Any news on Glory 18? I know as little as you do. Although the guy, John J. Franklin, who's the new CEO, he was the guy I tried out for on the Road to Glory show in New York, however long ago now. Um, so, um, so he's a, I can say he's a good guy, smart guy. GGG versus Ward, who wins? Everyone says GGG is not that guy, but um, I'd probably say Ward, but that's a fight I'd love to see. Um, what are your thoughts on UFC banning Jordan Means Dad, but allowing someone like Lord Irvin to corner? Yeah, the problem with that is that, one, Jordan Meehan's dad got arrested, which Lloyd Irvin, at least for the most recent allegations, has not been. Now, he was arrested 20 years ago and charged with um, rape, which he was exonerated for, um, or just found not guilty anyway. So there is a bit of an issue of, of that. Also, it was at a UFC event. Uh, it was at a UFC event the day before a fight. There's a recency there that, that matters to them, but I'm a little surprised that they haven't tried to distance themselves a little bit more. I don't know. I don't know why they haven't or, or what that all means. Cejudo versus Jorgensen. Highlight matchup of the night other than the main event. What are your thoughts on Cejudo as a prospect? I used to be very high on him. I am not anymore, but I'm willing to take it all back if he can show something different. Um, obviously, he has all the athletic gifts in the world, speaks Spanish without an accent, my wife tells me. 
fluently. Um, if you've been watching Ultimate Fighter Latin America, you can see that's a bit of an issue for Mr. Velasquez. Uh, uh, let's see. You know, obviously elite takedowns, but doesn't have much striking to speak of. We're going to see, I think this is going to be a game where he could probably take Jorgensen down. I mean, obviously Henry Suhu is a bit of a talent in that regard, but that he's going to get chewed up, I think, in the transition game between different spaces on the ground. He's not going to know where to put his hands and how to balance his weight uh, on the feet. Uh, you know, he'll have absolutely nothing for Scott Jorgensen, short of, you know, MMA being lucky, you can wing a shot. I'd love to be wrong about Henry Cejudo, you know. And Scott Jorgensen needs the win, but I, I, I certainly will not be picking Cejudo, which doesn't mean much in the end, but um, I'd love to tell you I, can, I believe in him more, but I don't. The best work you should investigate about him is done by uh, Coach uh, Mike Reardon over at Bloody Elbow, who had spoken about sort of why Cejudo won this gold medal and then had this weird drop-off in the wrestling community and why his win was, you know, his win was pretty spectacular to get the gold medal. He had to come back in all of the matches to do that. If you think about that, that's pretty crazy. Um, so his run was very unlikely. I mean, listen, you guys know the, the, the story here. Athletic gifts, beyond all athletic gifts, a guy, if he really dedicated himself, um, could be something special, but it's not clear that he's getting the right training. He's not clear he's surrounding himself with the right kind of people that can facilitate that kind of future. And, to, and irrespective of that, even if he was getting it, as we speak today, where is his talent level at? I have sort of very sincere concerns about it. So we'll see. Um, MMA Junkie versus MMA Fighting. How does MMA Fighting do compared to MMA Junkie and web traffic? Um, go to Quantcast. You can see for yourself. Change pay-per-view cost for UFC 177. We've seen before that Zufa has lowered the cost for lackluster pay-per-view. They have? But they've raised them and gone back to the original price, but they've never lowered them. Why don't they just do that again for 177 and other future lame duck cards? I cannot fathom people paying this much for an upcoming card. The basic response to all of this is that if you tier your pricing, then you signal that there's a quality issue. And, of course, the response to that is, fool, we know there's a quality issue. You don't have to tier your pricing. Um, but then it becomes a slippery slope of, of fans uh, really individualizing each transaction in the future about whether it's worth their price and what the price should actually be. If you set a consistent standard, you might lower your buy rates. Um, but at least you won't have to juggle with that problem of fans beginning to really sort of match event against price point and and that being a, a problem for you. I, you know, you could go to create a more tiered structure. You could have three price points and just stick to that. But even then, you begin to to raise that problem. UFC on free-to-air free TV. Thoughts on today's announcement that the UFC partnering with the first free-to-air channel in Ireland, 3E? Well, it's not new. Um been in the case for a while. As I understand it, this is not one of, of, the, of Ireland's bigger channels. It's a good opportunity for the, U, for the UFC to get some exposure in Ireland as they grow the product there. Um, but I, I, I get the sense that this is not this is not one of the bigger channels available in the free-to-air TV diet in that country. Uh, good enough to get wider exposure, good enough to grow the product, but I think we'd have to have some managed expectations about how big it actually is. Um, understanding is it's not that big. Could be wrong. And someone says, they already air UK events on t free TV. Um, 
BT Sports is just a novelty. Anyone who likes the sports subscribes to Sky Sports. Uh, Sky Sports apparently used to air Cage Warriors. Someone says, they air UK events on BT Sport. Ireland isn't in the UK, except for Northern Ireland. So people in Ireland have to pay, uh, looks like 200 euro per year for BT Sport. That's not free to air. They had a once-off Channel 5 deal, which wasn't permanent, unlike the 3E deal in Ireland. Let's see how Twitter's going. Someone says, guys at the door distracting me. Yeah, they're shooting some video here for the investors. I don't know why. Oh, the guy who I mentioned who did the uh, play-by-play play, play -play guy who did the video with Dan Hardy that I referenced is John Gooden, and I retweeted it yesterday. Someone says, Luke, put the live chats on iTunes. I did. Boral loses this weekend. Do you think he should move up to 145? Um, no. No, I don't. Depending on how he loses. We'll get to that more in a minute. Why is it so difficult for MMA fighters to sweep from the guard or get a better position from the guard? Most MMA fighters have a trash guard. <laughs> Most MMA fighters now are, like, if you think about it, what has been one of the best improvements in a short amount of time in MMA? And not just in the UFC, but at all levels. And I would submit to you one aspect, and there's many probably answers you could give me, but I would submit to you that one of the clearest answers is takedown defense uh, along the fence. If your opponent puts you into the fence, take down defense from that position. Um, I think that defense there at all levels of the game has gotten dramatically better. Certainly not impermeable, but significantly better. You have guys who may not have the greatest takedown defense uh, off of the cage, but they have really, really strong defense there. Guys who can give all Americans a lot of problems there. You know, uh, The fight I would point to, uh, and that was a crazy fight a little bit, but uh, Mirsad Bektic... Chas Skelly fight. Chas Skelly had Mirstad Bektic against the fence for a while and had a lot of trouble taking him down or taking him down and keeping him there. And you're talking about all American in Chas Skelly. You know, Mirstad Bektic, hell of an athlete, very good fighter, you know, by all means uh, a bright future, but doesn't have the wrestling pedigree as such that Chas Skelly has because all the takedowns Chas Skelly learned don't come from there. He'll have a good sense of balance and underhooking and, you know, and, and how to get his hands together and how to manipulate someone's body a little bit better than most, but that's a, that's a skill set you can shore up pretty fast at an elite camp like American Top Team. Um, and so that was, so, so what that tells me is that, one, um, that getting better at that, while not easy, can be done relatively quickly, and two, um, guys are investing a lot of time in it. You just don't see a lot of guys investing in their guard in the same way. A basic guard, controlling posture from guard, um, threatening basic submissions from guard, but you, it's only guys like Carlos Condit, who just has really poor takedown defense, who has invested in a very good guard, who does threaten with sweeps, great butterfly hooks, good use of them. Um, that's the problem. You don't see a lot of it, not because they're not effective, but because 
to get good at them it takes time and you have to invest in it and it's not easy um, and I think you're seeing a lot of that what's sort of crazy to me though is that um, I'm always a little surprised you don't see more sweeps disguised as submissions like you don't see a lot of Kimura sweeps you know and a Kimura is a pretty easy thing to lock up in MMA uh, not easy I should say but you know relatively speaking you can at least get the wrist on wrist grip and they may they may stuff it but that there's a there's a Kimura sweep lot in there all the time and guys don't really get it um, and that's one thing I would say is if you don't have a good use of your butterfly guard, you don't have a good use of your full guard and, and you know pushing off the hips and getting your hips off the ground, that's a Kimura sweep, man. You can do that from, from side control. So I don't know, but that's the answer. They just don't invest. They just don't invest. Uh, what do you make of the Cerrone allegations? I, um, I'm never surprised to hear that certain people could be racist, but without direct evidence of it, you know, I think we should be careful about making any pronouncements for anybody about anybody. Um, let's see. Well, it's impossible to answer this because we don't know what's going to happen in the fight. But someone's asking, what's next for Silva after Diaz, a matchup versus GSP's return for July? Well, first of all, GSP is saying he's not coming back unless they have. Um, Basically, basically, he's, he's not saying the UFC has to sign the water code, but he would want water code sign, uh, uh, levels of testing, more or less. Um, so unless that happens, good luck. But certainly possible. Um, it depends how Silva looks. Silva may come back and retire. If Silva, gets, if Silva loses and gets knocked out, again, I don't, something I don't find particularly likely, but crazier things have happened. Um, Let's just see how Silva looks and who's available, and then we'll go from there. But I would expect, you know, super fights. And because he can fight in two weight classes, it opens the doors to a lot of significant possibility. Someone asks also, what the F is Bonner doing? Seems like guys are slowly running, ruining any legacy he might have had. Well, he did that a long time ago. Um, I, don't, I don't see that signing with Bellator as any particular kind of thing. Listen, um, go back and look at Bonner's career, right? I don't mean win losses and stuff like that necessarily, but okay. So here is Bonner's from August 2006, with one exception. Bonner fought on pay-per-view. I'm not mistaken, unless some of these. Well, maybe not necessarily. Hold on. Mm, maybe. Some of these may have been not aired on Spike. But my point being is, if you look at the Rashad Evans, Keith Jardine, James Irvin, Sam Hoger, and Force Griffin fights, those aired on Spike TV. Those are all seminal fights. I can tell you what happens in all of them. In all of them. And I don't know why I can, but I can. I still remember Keith Jardine kicking Stephen Bonner in the head and him going, mm you know, I remember that distinctly. I remember the Kimura on James Irvin. Um, obviously, we know what happened in the Griffin fight. Like, I, I, I remember these fights. You know, um, the Spike TV relationship with Stephen Bonner is still, believe it or not, is still something you can mix. Um, he's a strong product for them in that regard. You know, is he going to move the needle in the same way he did back then? No, of course not. Of course not. It's just not possible. But Tito Ortiz versus Stephen Bonner on Spike TV. Yes, that works. 
the camera moved off. That works. That's a thing you can do. People on Spike TV know these names. Remember, a big part of the Bellator audience is not just fans who turn in to watch Bellator or to watch mixed martial arts, maybe generally speaking. Um, Spike TV gets a lot of people just doing this. A lot of people doing that. And if you can get them on, can you imagine, you know, instead of calling it Bellator 120, whatever, 130, whatever, but you could call it Bellator, or maybe you keep the number in, whatever, Bellator colon Ortiz versus Bonner. Dude, people will stop for that. People will stop for that. Um, you know, again, not nearly as much as they would have however long ago, but yeah, they would. For free TV, again, what is Bellator asking you to do? Just just stop by on a free night, on a Friday night. Just stop by on your DVR. Just just do that. Yeah, that's what they're doing. And so it's it, 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 whether you want to watch the fights or not, or however compelling you believe Bonner to be as a mixed martial arts talent at this juncture in his career and his life, these are certainly you know worthwhile criticisms to make. What is not a worthwhile criticism to make is that he will do better numbers than 99% of the talent on Bellator's roster on free television, on Spike TV, he absolutely would. This is a guy who built his name on Spike TV. Um, this is a guy who helped Spike TV and get in the MMA business to begin with. And that that kind of relationship and that kind of, um, you know, history is dies hard. It dies very hard. So, you know... You can lambast a fight all you want, and I, I wouldn't. You know, I'm not here to tell you wrong. I don't. I, I mean, I don't really care to see it exactly. But if you want to understand what the thinking there is, that's the thinking. And by the way, someone was asking me earlier, what did you think about those cuts, the ones I reported on earlier this week? The majority of them made sense, and I said it at the time, and everyone was like, "Oh, you're you're just being a dick." No, I'm not. None of y'all cared about Atelave. Please stop pretending you do. You want to talk about people not giving an f about a guy? None of you care about Atelave. That was about you just not liking what they did to Atelave, which is fine under the Bureau of Revenue regime. You're allowed to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But this idea that people are like, you know, rolling around in their bed in cold sweats because they just can't fathom. The horror that's been done to Attila Vey, you could save that S for another sucker, because I'm not the one. Okay, you don't care about Attila Vey, and the reason he got cut is that he's boring. Uh, maybe not categorically to you. Maybe you like him. Maybe you're one of the few that does. But he doesn't have a lot of offensive weapons. He does have a couple stoppages in his careers, but he's the kind of guy who just can't get a lot going. Um, he, people, people don't care about him. It's the long and short. Now he has a bit of talent. It's true, but you can see what Scott Coker's trying to do. He is gonna sign guys with talent. Yes. But they've got to get to the point where they're doing bigger ratings. It is you can see that clearly. It's a major, major priority with them. I am assuming, while I don't know for sure, I'm assuming that Scott Coker has had a lot of discussions with Spike TV and the folks at Viacom, and it seems to me that a major, major premium is being placed on getting the ratings up. You should, if you're on Spike TV, you should be doing a million or a million plus. I think Scott Coker said as much. You're not going to do that with a Televay in any kind of main event role. Now, you could have kept him on, I suppose, in some kind of co-main event. We're just on the roster altogether. But he's just not hes just not that guy. They want to pack those main cards with bangers. They want to pack those, those main cards with guys who take risks. They want to pack those main cards with guys who also, in the case of current Pitbull, have a lot of elite level. Right? That's what they want to do. And that's what they're going to do. So getting rid of Attila Vey should be the least surprising thing that happens. What I will say, that one that did surprise me, is getting rid of Shabala Shampalayev. I do not understand that at all. I understand that 
he had a bad fight. I was there against Fabricio Guerrero. Maybe he wanted out. Maybe it was one of those circumstances, and I just don't know the full story. If that's the case, okay, fair enough. If a guy wants out, like Eddie Alvarez, you got to let him go. Um, and I'm sure they did want to keep Eddie Alvarez, by the way. Letting him go was not because they just didn't give an F. It's because extenuating circumstances kind of forced their hand. But in the case of Sean Haliah, if you want to talk about a guy who, win or lose, goes out in the shield, can just put Bama's away, um, you know, and and just a hard puncher, aggressive, lightning quick hands. I wonder, though, like the, the only thing I can sort of think to understand that is, A, what I mentioned before, if he just wanted out, um, or B, I will say that, and Dana White is good at this, too, the better promoters have a sense of when a guy's career is going like that. Now, they don't always get it right, and sometimes they, they understand it and they still try to sell you to them, <clears throat> Bob Arum. But um, one thing that the better promoters are good at is seeing before the rest of us that this 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 guy is going that way. Maybe that's what he sees. You know, if you look at Chumalab's career, he had a nice run against some 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 decent names, but um, against anybody with a good pedigree now, he's getting kind of hurt. I mean, Cajero broke his shoulder or arm with that submission. So, um, so maybe that's it. Maybe he sort of sees something there where it's like, mm, this guy's going to be in a downswing. I'm not going to sort of watch this as, as he, as he goes that direction. Um, and that was so you would you would ask, well, then why do you have Carl Parisian on the card? Well, Carl's got a name, you know. Shabalach Alive is good for the hardcores, but not so great necessarily for. Uh, for casual observance. Uh, Pillow Fists Bisping. Luke, could you share your thoughts? Well, that's not my thing. That's what they wrote. Could you share your thoughts specifically on the fourth round of the Bisping versus Lee fight? For all the Pillow Fists jibes, I thought that finishing the Flory was pretty lethal and especially for the fourth round. However, others tell me that it was a weak and only worked because of Lee's eye being closed up. Well, I mean, guys, we're this far into his career. If Bisping punches you, it hurts. I don't think anyone's ever said that. What they are saying, though, is that he doesn't really one-punch. Like You don't get Bisping in the first round and him connecting on a right hand and, and guys sitting on their ass. Like It doesn't work that way with him. He's the guy who chips away at you. And those chips, each one of those are hurt, but over time they become devastating. So, yes, like if Michael Bisping punches you, you're going to feel it, but you're not going to feel it in the one-punch kind of way that alters a guy's consciousness, like, say, Hector Lombard. Or, um, you know, the kind of punch Daniel Cormier put on Bigfoot Silva. These one-punch, sit-you-down kind of things. He's just not that guy. Also, remember, the knee did the majority of the sitting. So what what, what Michael Brisbane, you know, and listen, why does he have that style? He has that style because he has to have that, that style. That style was made because it's, it's a response to not having that kind of power. He naturally developed that style, yes, but would he have be a volume puncher if he could just break your teeth with one shot? No. No. Guys who have that kind of power have different kind of striking. Look at the footwork that Frank Yeager has. Part of the reason why he has that is because he cannot sit you down with one shot in the first round. Not typically, anyway. Not against the better guys. Um, and why does Hector Lombard have the footwork that he has? Because if he can connect on you with one shot, especially early... My friend, you are going to wake up looking at lights. These guys develop techniques around what works for them early and often. They build around it, right? That's what happens for everybody. 
So, so yes, it's not that it doesn't hurt when it hits. It hurts. It's just that each individual, it's, it's death by a thousand cuts. You know, by that thousandth cut, you just can't take it anymore. That's his game. And that's a problem because it forces him to be in fights a little bit longer than he probably would like to be. Um, but he's got, you know, for the most part, decent defense too. And um, so, no, we don't have to reconsider anything. He's got this style as a function of, as a consequence of the fact he's simply not a dynamic power puncher. Doesn't make him a weak puncher. Doesn't make him a soft puncher. I'm sure every shot he lands is hard as f. But for the guys at the elite level, being hard as f is not enough. Has to be constant or just game altering power. He does not have game altering power, and not a lot of guys do, and that's okay. But you have to accept. It's not up for debate. And then, of course, MJC flipped the script, says all five of Bisping's UFC knockdowns are from strikes in the clinch. You think about that fight. You think about the Dennis Kang fight. You know, he unloads on guys there. Over under, six tile defenses for Chris Weidman. Six tile defenses. Ooh. I'll say under. Two rounds for Weidman Belfort. I mean, I think it'll be exactly two rounds. Four title defenses for Johnny Hendricks, under. Five title defenses for Cain Velasquez, over. Uh, one F given about UFC 177, under. Three title defenses for Anthony Pettis, over. I don't know. What's left for Ben Henderson? Um, do you... Ever want to see him making his way to a title shot again? Not only do I, or whether I want or don't want, I, I suspect you'll see that. That that stoppage, let me fix this camera. That stoppage wasn't bad, in the sense that you look at it, you can sort of say, well, this was technically a wrong stoppage. I don't I don't think you can do that. But what I would say though is, um, it happened in the first round, which sort of counts to me. And second. If they fought five times, who would win three of those? I'm not convinced the answer is, is Rafael Dos Anjos. I'm happy that he won. He's one of these guys to me that has maximized his potential. Um, a guy who has really dynamic jiu-jitsu and, and absolutely crushing control positionally. I really like, I'm a big admirer of his game. I'm a big admirer of his work ethic. And I really, really am a fan of what he can do. You know, um, I like Rafael Dos Anjos. But if I'm just being honest with you, do I feel like he could beat Ben Henderson three out of five times? I do not. I do not. You know, um, I wouldn't call it a lucky punch. I think I think Ben Henderson is open to those kinds of shots. I think that Javier Dos Anjos is a skilled technician. Um, I'm sure that Javier Dos Anjos can give Ben Henderson a hard time in all five of those fights. But I would pick Ben Henderson to win three of the five. Sorry, I just would. You know, and maybe before I would have picked four of the five, and now I have to backtrack that down to three. But that's sort of how I feel, that I didn't feel like it was a referendum on where he was in the division, a permanent one. It's not like what Roy McDonald did to Tyrone Woodley, but there's a clear differentiation. You know, he won. He won fair and square. You have to give him credit. Ben Henderson has to live with that. That's fine. And you guys know I'm not the biggest fan of Ben Henderson's style of fighting, but um, I still would pick him to win three out of five times. Um, 
Someone goes, any idea why they why Bellator's had a massive massive roster purge? Because they had unbelievably way too many guys on their on their roster who, first of all, they have less events. They can't keep all these guys, right? They did 26 events last year. They're going to do 16 in 2015. They're just they they can't accommodate as many guys. And also remember, the way Bellator sells tickets because it still hasn't gotten itself off the ground yet in, in that kind of live event way, is they sell, they get a bunch of guys on the prelim card who are just local donks, and the local donks help sell tickets, either directly or indirectly. I'm not sure how the new system will work, but that's what they do. You know, Tom DeBlas is from New Jersey. His school is going to come out to watch him compete when they're at Revel Casino. Revel will be dead in a matter of days, but you get the idea. Okay? So... That doesn't, that doesn't leave them a lot of space to put guys who they really value and want and want to showcase on the prelim card. That means they have to go on the main card, but the main card on most of these Spike TV events is probably going to only have four fights. There's just less roster space. And now they got women coming in as well. There's just less roster space. they got to get rid of some of these. And they had... Bellator's roster was so bloated. I mean, how many times do we have to see Eric Prindle get kicked in the balls before you just say, dude, enough, enough. Let's just move on from this experiment. Um, so there's a lot of that. Uh, want Vanderlei Silva, do you think the UFC should or could dish out their own punishment on Vanderlei? Well, they could, of course, but they won't. How much does Dolce cost? Seems silly for some fighters who could obviously lose weight without him. Probably in the five figures. But I mean, the question is if you're if you the, the question is not whether it is it is worth it. What does worth it mean? Is it worth it for a guy like Roy Nelson? No, I mean, it's worth it to you and your individual needs and your difficulty in cutting weight. And if you are losing money and potentially missing on, you know, career advancement opportunities because you have difficulty managing your weight on fight week and on the way day of the weigh-ins, you need to invest in some help. And, and so for a guy like Kelvin Gastelum, who is being fined when he can't make it and embarrassing himself uh, unnecessarily, it's a cost that he should be able to manage. Now, why BJ Penn has an issue with him, who knows? Um, Dana White in Macau, what are your thoughts on Dana's decision and what went down? I think you mean um, yanking the judges. Well, credit goes to uh, Ben Folks and Kevin Ioli and I believe Michael Stetz as well who wrote about this. People were wondering what the big deal is. The big deal is that um, the problem with doing international regulation with no external governing body is that you're always in the space where the fox is guarding the hen house. You know, ultimately, you can do whatever you want. But there has to be at least the appearance of formed, coherent, systemic guidelines around how you regulate yourself. Ultimately, any there's always going to be an argument against self-regulation that like, you can just do whatever you want, and that's true. And you'll never be able to get away from that. But what I think the UFC is trying to do is they're trying to, and this is the work of, of um, you know Mark Ratner and others, they're trying to ensure that there's product integrity. Um, Understand the fight game is like 
like why were athletic commissions created? It's because this is a game, historically speaking, not today currently necessarily, at least not to the same extent, but this is a game historically, when I say historically, I mean, you know, early 20th century, that was run by grifters, man. Thieves and malcontents and all other form of vermin. And so the so laws were created where these guys had to get licenses and they had to put up money ahead of time so guys wouldn't get screwed. And eventually the regulation became stricter so that they became medical staff that had to be there. And so there were all these things that have to be done to satisfy regulatory. That, that was done because they needed to be there for to, to make this a palatable thing that we do. We're letting guys fight for sport. We need to make sure that we have some rules in place here. Um, and they're trying to self-regulate in that spirit, you know, understanding what they know what regulation looks like in Nevada or New Jersey or anywhere else, and they're trying to make sure that, that standard is upheld in other places, and not simply from the sake of appearances, but to actually do it correctly. You know, the last thing that they want is to get in any kind of regulatory trouble. The last thing they want is to have people question the way in which they regulate. And again, they're always going to when it's self-regulated. It's it's an inevitable consequence. But if you have to live with that. You want to make sure that everything else is done correctly. The T's across the I's are dotted, and there's a certain sanctity of the rule set that is upheld. When Dana White went and removed that judge, however incompetent he may or may not be, that was that was that was challenged. The sanctity of the regulation was challenged, and people saying, "Well, he was correcting for error." It's not him to decide to correct for error in that particular circumstance. The way to do that is to then review. And yes, they do pick their own judges. Again, another criticism. But you don't want to sort of devolve into this point where you structurally note the problems and then say all other granular regulatory things that the UFC wants to do on event night, they simply don't matter. They can do whatever they want. I think once you get into this anarchic style of viewing self-regulation, you actually do undermine some of the benefits that you get from an honest broker like UFC. I do think that Mark Ratner tries to do an honest job there. Um, does that mean it's a perfect job? Of course not. Does that mean it's a complete job? Absolutely not, and and maybe that, those are unattainable goals in and of themselves. But what I do know to be true is that saying, well, it's self-regulatory, so what's the big deal? You open the door to a massive amount of problems, and and moreover, even if you take Dana White and Mark Ratner and the entire Zoof operation to be honest brokers, and you probably should in this particular regard for self-regulation in international territory. Um, the idea is not you don't create rules for the good people. You create rules for the bad. And again, it's self-regulation. It's not industry-wide standards. Guys can go regulate overseas how they want. But the point is, and, and Ben Folks raised this concern, imagine you had like a Bob Arum going in there removing judges. You would be like, what are you doing? This is terrible. You're ruining guys' careers this way. You know, um, If you're going to remove a judge, you do so after the fact and after some kind of measure of review. I'll say this a thousand times. The self-regulation thing, it's never going to be good enough. It's always going to be flawed. It's always going to be fraudulent. Uh, not fraudulent, I should say. It's always going to be flawed. It's always going to be very incomplete. And it's always going to have these structural problems. But these problems aren't so bad that you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is some value, even in a self-regulatory environment, to keeping rules sacred to keeping boundaries between promoter, in this case Dana White himself, and the person running the regulatory end of the affairs uh, separate until the event is over. Once an event goes live, it needs to go live. until Unless a guy is, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know, setting on fire his judging scoring cards. Unless something like that is happening, 
the guy's doing his job, however incompetently, you run that out, and then you fix it after the fact. Um, only in the case of an emergency, not a promoter's whim, would you want to change something like that. And, and like, I point to the work of Ioli and folks and Stets for, you know, they can give you a little further delineation of the argument. But my only argument would be, if, you're, if you find all these things problematic, in the way in the environment that self-regulation works, I, I, I don't begrudge you that argument, but I would caution you against throwing your hands up and saying, well, it just doesn't matter. Uh, it matters greatly. People can self-regulate better than other people. Right? In other words, there's, there's gradients to this. There's, there's ways to do this better and better and better. Um, and I think UFC is chasing that, but that was a bit of a back step. You know? That was a pretty clear back step. People saying the result was good. I don't know if the result was good. How do you know the result was good? And the result isn't good if, in fact, it causes all these other problems and questions about what, from a regulatory standpoint. And also, that's the other issue. If he's willing to remove judges like that, what, what else is he willing to do? The UFC did the right thing, and you know they're not going to sanction Dana White and fine him and stuff like that. You know, it's not going to work. And you can you can be take the cynical approach that they, the note they sent out saying he was in breach of protocol was simply PR, and maybe it was. But I'm okay with that idea a little bit. I'm okay with them recognizing this is a problem, right? We we are going to be perceived in a certain way, and even if we are honest brokers, we don't want to be perceived that way. We want to be perceived as guys who take regulation, even in the case when we're the ones responsible for doing it, seriously. You know, this is our ship to run, um, but we want to run it in a way that um, indicates to the rest of the regulatory community worldwide and to our customers and to the sports community generally that we are in we are in the business of, of best practices we are in the business of doing this correctly because doing it correctly matters for the health and integrity of the sport it matters for the health and integrity of the brand and it matters for these athletes who compete that night um, remember fight sports not just for having a, 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 an ugly history in terms of who was in it um, they have an ugly history about Concerns of fight fixing and 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 promoter overreach and um, all these other sort of acts of malfeasance. When you do something like that, even if you do it in good faith, like I'm trying to make sure that the next guy who has this judge doesn't get hoard, you're actually you're actually not doing that. You're not guaranteeing that. You're actually raising all those other concerns about whether the fight game is or isn't corrupt. And again, I'm in no way accusing UFC of doing that. In fact, I think quite the opposite. I think they do the best they can with self-regulation for the most part. Um, you know, again, which is a major caveat, but it's the best one we can give. And uh, But that was a clear back step. I think apologizing was the right thing. And I think Dana White coming out and saying, I'll never do that again, also the right thing. You've got to make sure once, once the first fight goes live, the regulations you set in place must be allowed to run their course even to the detriment of individual fighters on individual scorecards. Um, the Ultimate Fighter Latin America. The Ultimate Fighter Brazil and Tough China reinvigorated my love for the show. Please tell me that there are yoga instructors and old female coaches who have never seen an MMA fight before on the upcoming Tough Latin America. <laughs> and is Kane planning on fighting as a super heavyweight or something? Uh, I saw the first episode of The Ultimate Fighter Latin America. Um, the first fight was, as you can imagine, two regional level guys, you know. Um, if you like that sort of thing, fine. It's just not high level. I was just sort of curious to see um, how the show was shot and who the characters were. And The major takeaway for me that I thought was really, really, not major, but a funny takeaway that I had. So the first time that BJ Penn fought George St. Pierre, 
and in other shows on the Ultimate Fighter, UFC has done it. But Dana White has been a pretty strong critic, and I can some levels understand why, not totally, but a little bit, of nationalism in fight sport. He doesn't like the idea of, in the case of St. Pierre versus Pan on that card, USA versus Canada. You know, uh, tough nations, USA versus Australia. And they've done it, they've gotten much more comfortable with it. But what's funny to me about the Latin American version is they didn't just get comfortable with it, they went out hardcore and embraced it. And I can tell you, um, you know, I'm a white guy, I take that for what it's worth. But uh, my, all my in-laws and my whole side of that family are, are South American. South American nationalistic rivalry is a very real thing, both healthy and unhealthy. Um, it's just the, the, the subcategorization, even within their own countries, of who's from this part of the territory, who's from that part of the territory. We do that here in America, but not nearly to the same identifying you know, divisional extent. It's crazy. It's crazy how much they do it. And there's a scene, um, there, like in the first episode, I won't spoil it, but in the first episode, there's a battle over, over which flags are displayed in the home, in the Ultimate Fighter home. I mean, it comes out right away, and who has the better culture over the other one? I'm telling you. Like, they went out, and it was the right call. By the way, I'm not saying it's the, the wrong call. I'm in, fact, I'm, in fact, applauding them for doing it. It's something that, that seems to just be part of the Latin American experience. From, from my vantage point, I could be wrong. I don't want to stereotype, but I do notice a lot of it. They worked in that, that Latin American rivalry into the show, I think that will be a huge theme of it, not just because it's Team Mexico versus Team South America, but beyond that. Um, and it's just funny how Dana White has, you know, something he uh, maybe maybe he's warmed up to it quite a bit, uh, and maybe he had to be convinced to go this far with it. But it is a huge, huge condition so far of of this show, and um, and very funny and very funny to see. Just you know, because I've heard him so many times say, "I just don't like doing it." Man, maybe he likes it now. And and by the way, it works. It completely works. It creates for drama that is, you know, it is reality TV show drama, but it's also a little fun to watch, I'll be honest. Like, the fight is whatever. It's, you're just not going to get good fights on that show, but you're, you're going to get a lot of Latin American rivalry, man, right in your face. It's kind of funny. Oh, my phone is blowing up. What does that mean? Uh, let's see. Oh, someone says, I don't think Stephen Bonner's signing with Bellator is a big deal. I think more about his comments about loyalty than he does this. Um, maybe these guys need money. I don't know. What's, I mean, what's Stephen Bonner even been doing, you know? Do you see Kung Lee hanging him up? I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, I don't know if that is likely, but he's at this point where it's like, how many more of these are you going to do? Oh, you're not? You're not going to stop? Okay, fine. That's cool. He probably doesn't want to hang it up on that. I mean, that's the problem, though. Like, he got, I mean, he got cut to fish bait in his face, you know. Does he really want to go out in that kind of condition? Probably not. Jose Aldo pushing Chad Mendez at UFC 179 Media Day. 
How do you like Jose taking a page from Cormier when he pushed Chad? I got giggly and did golf claps when I saw it. Yeah, it was fine. I mean, didn't have the same kind of effect. Obviously, it wasn't even a brawl, but, you know. They seem to have some rivalry. True or false, UFC 177 is the worst pay-per-view of the tough era. It's top three. UFC 177 will be the worst selling pay-per-view of the tough era. Hmm. I don't know. Um, maybe not. Tough Latin America is the bigger deal than Tough 20. Uh, yes, it is. Although Tough 20 very big deal. Um, but just the way in which the Ultimate Fighter Latin America can crack new markets, and I, I, and you, you notice I use the word markets. I mean, let's be clear. The Ultimate Fighter Latin America is largely about Mexico. If you look at it, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Rodrigo Del Campo, who helped me understand where it's airing in other places in Latin America. Um, if you look at most of the air dates and times that the Ultimate Fighter Latin America is airing in Bolivia, Argentina, Colombia, whatever, um, Ecuador, you see that it's like, I think in Argentina it's like 2 a.m., Something like that. One of these countries, is, I have the thing here. Hold on. It's crazy. So in uh, Paraguay, every Sunday, uh, try to find one of the crazier ones. Yeah, Ecuador. Todos los domingos, 2 a.m. <laughs> every Sunday, 2 a.m. Yeah, todos los domingos a la medianoche. Uh, Nicaragua. Sabados, so Saturday at 6 p.m. There's some different ones. Ah, here we go. Mexico, todos los miércoles, 10 p.m. Central Time. Panama, viernes, 9 p.m. So there's some better ones, but you can see in in Peru, Ecuador, Paraguay, Bolivia, Argentina, Uruguay, they're airing at like midnight or later. It's going to take time to open up those markets, you know. Um, and not that they're not trying, they are. And I think in Colombia it's airing on cable TV, if I'm not mistaken, um, on city TV. And so it's air, and those are just free to air. So there's also the cable component. And when that doesn't work, there's the UFC network. So it's not just about Mexico, be clear about that, but it's primarily about Mexico. One word of caution, I've seen people say, oh, well, Mexico will be the next Brazil. It will not be the next Brazil. There is no next Brazil. There's no such thing. That isn't to say it won't be mega popular. That isn't to say they won't have huge ratings and big shows and a reason to celebrate, because they probably will. If you've watched this chat, you know I'm a big believer in Latin American growth. I think that is much more likely to pop soon than Asia, for example. And you can laugh at me, but I think that's true. Um, but one of the key ingredients that, that Brazil had, that Mexico does not in a fundamental capacity, is by the time the UFC was ready to pop there, yes, they had the great television um, partners and, and conditions in the market to bring their product. But from a natural standpoint, one, um, it wasn't MMA back then, but fight sports have a boom and bust cycle. And it had boomed twice before in Brazil and busted. So yes, there was some baggage, but these were people accustomed to this kind of entertainment product in this kind of way. And I don't mean like boxing. 
independent of that. Moreover, and more importantly, they had elite fighters in basically every weight class. In other words, they didn't just have fighters from flyweight to heavyweight, which Mexico does not have at an elite level, or at, at, at even a highly high professional level. They have elite fighters in every weight class. Mexico simply does not have that. That won't preclude you from putting on shows there, but Brazil had so many national heroes you could hang your hat on, from heavyweight Junior Dos Santos to, to light heavyweight, you had Machida, now he's a middleweight, but a middleweight Anderson Silva, a welterweight, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on, and Jose, Jose Aldo and Henan Barrao and any number of, of lightweights and any number of welterweights. You had all these guys. You had all these guys. And even guys who have moved here, who still, you know, obviously fluent Portuguese, they can go back and headline shows, you know. They have all they had all that. I remember those first few cars that the UFC would do over there when they were really starting to push into Brazil. They looked like old Pride Bushido cards. We would just substitute out Japanese guys and put in Brazilian guys. And it's crazy. And it's crazy. You cannot do that in Mexico without substantially lowering the quality of your product. I mean substantially. You can put on a card with nothing but Brazilian guys and have elite fighters all the way down. That is a fundamental difference between UFC, uh, Mexico and Brazil. That Mexico will take 10 years to fix. 10 years. If, five at best. So, so we have to have really clear understanding that Mexico will not be Brazil. I think Mexico will be a big win for them. I'm happy that the UFC is there. I think that they're going to have Latin fighters that are great in 10 years. This may not be the same kind of concern. I think they're going to have big shows there. I'm happy about it. This is not to say it won't be a big win. But there is no other country in the world like Brazil where the economy was booming. They were used to fight sports. They had fighters. I mean, they had, they had their own martial art. Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and they had elite fighters in every weight class, champions, many of them, who once the UFC was there, it was a kaboom effect. Mexico is not even close to that, is not even close to that. That there is enthusiasm is absolutely a thing to applaud, but we cannot put it on the same level of Brazil, not now, not ever. Let's see. Um, Dean Thomas, MMA scouting, legit. I love Dean Thomas, by the way. Dean Thomas picked up a win over the weekend as an MMA scout working with Woodley. What do you make of his business? Dean mentioned in the MMA hour that Rory's team did a good job of scouting Woodley in their fight, which is why he lost, but Rory's scouts are actually just his coaches. So do you see any advantages of hiring a scout, or is it a waste of money? Um, I mean, it depends entirely on a fighter's needs. But a lot of these fighters, there's a problem. Like, you would say, well, can't you just do scouting on your own? A lot of these guys don't like to watch tape. Maybe their coaches are good at training them, but not. But I don't know, somehow not evaluating them. Maybe he has a relationship with Dean. It's hard to say exactly. Um, where do pay-per-view numbers come from? I apologize if this is a bad question, but I was just wondering where the pay-per-view buy rates actually come from. They come from the pay-per-view providers, the MSOs. Um, so DirecTV, uh, Time Warner. Um, there's other places you can get them, actually, beyond that, but you can get them from them, too. Foxcatcher, how hyped are you for this film? Super hyped. November can't come here soon enough. Um... World Series of Fighting, what's really going on? Luke, thanks to the... Uh, yeah. Thanks to some excellent reporting a couple months back over at Bloody Elbow by John Nash. 
We know World Series of Fighting is basically making very little revenue off of their shows, and it's probably losing money. No, they're definitely losing money. After the costs are factored in. It's not a question of whether they're not making money. It's flat out. Let's be clear about that. I mean, that doesn't mean they're not drawing in revenue, but they're not making a profit. Also, a VP over at World Series of Fighting um, has been seen on Tough and is clearly friendly with Dana White. White also publicly stated that Ben Askren should go to World Series of Fighting. So I'd like to ask, what is the connection between Zufa and World Series of Fighting? World Series of Fighting, it's, I don't think it's anything nefarious. I think that World Series of Fighting realized it's better not to fight, or at least they calculated for themselves. It's better to not fight you, uh, Zufa. Better to be in their good graces. So that was one. Um, and... Um, yeah, it's not much more complicated than that, except that Zufa probably leans on them as a competitor to Bellator. That should tell you everything. Right? Who's the real number two? It's not a debate. I mean, K I would put Cage Warriors even ahead of World Series of Fighting, you know, at this point, on honestly. Like I would. I mean, in terms of like the level of talent they put out that gets signed by UFC, it's ridiculous. You know. World Series of Fighting is in a bit of a different business because they're trying to get names that may not be the top any or you know, the very top anymore, but that are out of the UFC, like your shields and your fitches. And, and Cage Wars is trying to pull guys up and then push them on. Um, so it's two different kind of business models. So maybe the comparison isn't directly fair, but, you know. A lot more exciting things are happening at Cage Wars. I'll put it that way. Um, but if the UFC is being buddy-buddy with World Series of Fighting, it's because they perceive them utterly as no threat whatsoever. And they don't probably see Bellator as much of a threat either, nor should they, but certainly much more than um, World Series of Fighting. Is Zufa bankrolling them? Hell no, Zufa ain't bankrolling them. Uh, Green's comments about Don Cerrone, already talked about that. Danny ejecting the ref, talked about that. What should Dana have done in regards to the incompetent judge Howard Hughes at Macau? He should have talked to Mark Ratner after the event and expressed his concern. In the UFC apology, they said they were looking forward to working with Howard Hughes again, which makes me cringe to think this donk actually sticks around now. Well, you hadn't heard of him before. You've heard of other bad judges. Let me um, let me look up something here real quick. All right. So you go to MMA Decisions, and you look at MMADecisions.com, which is a shout-out to them. Those guys are incredible. They do great work. They will show you that when you have um, a dissent and a split decision. Okay? And I'm looking at it now. He had a bunch in two, 2013. Well, he seems to love, uh, or he seems to hate um, Lupe Aranche. In any case, in 2014. He judged fights at the Ultimate Fighter China. He judged four of them. He judged two at UFC Fight Night 37. He judged two at UFC Fight Night 39. He judged three at UFC Fight Night 41. He judged three at UFC Fight Night 46. And he judged two at UFC Fight Night 48. I'm not saying individual rounds or even maybe some scorecards weren't crazy. He was not in the dissent in any of them. In any of them. His card does not contradict... In, the, in terms of who won and lost in any of them. I'm trying to look at what ones he judged. I mean, these are pretty clear. Yeah, some of these fights I don't even remember.
Um, let's see. In fact, do you guys remember the uh, the Strickland versus Barnett fight? Many thought that Barnett had won. He scored it for Strickland. Well, there you go. Uh, but he wasn't the only one. And he he had a 29-28 versus Andy Hay. How do you pronounce his name? He had all three rounds for Strickland. I think it's sort of what it shows you is, I mean, yeah, there might be some bad scorecards here. All right, so my point's not as great as I thought it was, but... Um, all right, let's see. Ian McCall, Brad Pickett. He scored that fight. Scored it. He gave one round to Pickett. It's fine, but he got the he got the right guy one. Yeah, listen, his scorecards aren't great. I'm not gonna say they're. <laughs> I'm not gonna say they're great. Um, but I would say that they're probably struggling for competent refs so they can get to do this job in a consistent kind of way. UFC's used him many times. Although you know what. This guy's scorecard is some sh is some s. All right, let me take this back a little bit. His his body of work should be reviewed. I'll I'll leave it at that. I haven't done enough yet to to make a a clear comment, but now that I'm looking at it, I'm I'm not too pleased with it. Um, UFC strategy in China, Luke. What are your thoughts on the Macau card overall? Um, overall, I didn't care much for it. Overall. Personally, I thought it was awful, and I don't see how any potential fans of China could watch those fights and start to like MMA. Me neither. Would it be better for the UFC to just book white, black, and Hispanic fighters who know what they're doing and can put on a decent fight instead of Chinese fighters who are incapable of much in MMA and thus far less capable of putting on an exciting fight? They are in a bad spot because they can't actually do what you're suggesting. What they can do is create a bigger event where they can make the event more palatable. So instead of just having a co-main event and a main event that are really great, which they were in this case, you could have three, even four fights on the main card, and then maybe have the better Chinese fighter um, on the fifth fight, maybe you know, or maybe two fights on the, on the main card. You can fill up the rest of the card, not the rest of the card, you can fill up a lot of the rest of the card with Chinese fighters. And you can make that, assuming you have the right broadcast deal, um, available to those kinds of people in those regions. But they have to get the right television deal, which they don't have there yet. Um, they have to get on mainland China. They have Here's the point about China. They have such a long way to go. Such a long way to go. For as far back as Mexico, for, for, for as far back as, as Mexico is relative to Brazil, they are orders of magnitude ahead uh, there as they are in China. They have the right TV deal in Mexico. They have enthusiasm. They have a handful of fighters, including their heavyweight champion, who, while American, certainly can um, play, you know, provide a valuable service as a, as a, as a promotable uh, entity in that market. They have a lot going for them there, a lot. In China, you have guys who fight nowhere even approximately near the UFC level. Those guys, those Chinese fighters, God bless them, are, are garbage. La basura. Not good. Not good. And the UFC knows it. But what is their options? They can't put these guys on a position where fewer fewer people see them. They need to have these people be seen so that other fighters can sort of follow their lead that, that Chinese fans watching at home can be intrigued by... Because um, there is a sense of nationalism in, in combat sports and the sports generally. Um, you know, the Yao Ming effect is a real kind of thing. It's a very different thing, but it's it's a it's an understandable um, phenomena. 
they can't bury them, but they can't prominently feature them. These guys are super behind what the UFC actually is. They're just in a tough spot there. They've got a long, long, long way to go in Japan. Less so in South Korea. I'm still waiting to see why they haven't been there yet, although Marshall Zelazic tells me that's been on the agenda to go to South Korea now. Um, Singapore, we'll see. Um, Philippines, we'll see. There's some hope there. You know, Team Lakai, Lakai, I already pronounce it. I always get it wrong. Uh, out in the Philippines, uh, obviously Evolve MMA and Singapore and so forth. So there's some optimism there, but um, you can see why there's a, a general excitement about Mexico. It's so infinitely further ahead than China. And people keep saying, well, did you bring the right event? What is the right event in China? You just need to have a steady drip there and just be patient. It's just infinitely behind where they need to be. Infinitely, infinitely. Um, there's one guy that I think deserves to be mentioned, and that is, uh, you know, here's one advantage that boxing has. This is part of my whole thought about oversaturation. People are like, oh my God, how many amazing fights are there going to be when this is a global sport? I mean, boxing is a global sport. How many major awesome events do you have a year? Um, but because boxing is global, and in the case of China, you have people like Top Rank who can take Zhu Shiming on shows there, on like Pacquiao shows, for example, which they've done, I think I think he was on the Pacquiao-Rios card, if I'm not mistaken, um, and they have, I mean, they're still in Macau, they're doing the same, same event, Kota Arena, or same um, venue, Kota Arena in the, in the Venetian, so they're not making that much more progress themselves in that particular regard, but they at least have an Olympic gold medalist, you know, they have an Olympic gold medalist boxer in Zhu Shiming, who they can, who they can rally around, in the MMA they have nothing. Nothing. Those guys are decades behind the rest of us. All right, a few more of these. Bisping versus Rockhold or Machida versus Rockhold? Is that a real question? Bisping versus Rockhold. Askren fight. Um, how long do you think it takes Ben Askren to take down the random Asian donkey is fighting? Less than less than thirty seconds. Um, Let's see, let's see. More of these. Cage size. Here we go. This is a good one. This past Saturday at UFC 49, we saw the outcome of holding an event with a smaller cage. It leads to more action, aggression, and finishes as it reduces the space in which fighters can simply run in circles and avoid engaging. I believe the octagon is usually 30 feet in diameter, whereas Saturday was 25 feet wide. Uh, why does the UFC not use this octagon size more often? I do not know. I really, really don't know. I wonder if it's partly the optics from a live event perspective. I'll get to that in a minute. Let me finish your question. Is this because the different rules in different states? I personally see no downsides whatsoever to using a smaller cage. It forces fighters to engage, which is what we want to see. Furthermore, seeing some flyweight fights and thinking of upcoming strawweight fights in such a large cage seems just ridiculous. The space being incredibly large for the fighters to move around. First of all, I agree with you 100%. I wish they would go to this cage size a lot more often. I, I, I do wonder about the optics, though, which is to say Bellator's cage is different in two respects. One, it is smaller than the other cages, uh, certainly than the UFC standard UFC cage. And two, it's circular. If you're actually up close, it's hard to see at the angle where it begins to turn because it just becomes a black mass. Um, now, that may not necessarily be the case for one of the smaller cages that has octagon panels, but I still wonder if the smaller cage actually makes it hard to see. If you go to a live event, 
people are there's cameramen there and um, photographers and judges and so getting a nice clear view of the octagon is possible believe it or not as it gets bigger as it gets smaller I think I wonder if the UFC is saying I don't know this to be true but I wonder if the UFC is saying to themselves this is a little bit hard to see um, but I have to agree with you like part of nostalgia for pride is though yes they did have some great fights and and part of things for strike force and, and IFL and so forth and affliction part of it is just blind romanticism but for WEC part of that romanticism is based on the fact that they used that exact same size of cage the blue mat was fun but ultimately irrelevant but I am a firm believer especially for the guys fighting at lower weights that little ass cage is excellent for getting the kind of action that we want. When you have fewer corners to turn, and even not even not just for littler guys, go back and look at Eddie Sanchez versus Mirko Krokop. Mirko Krokop just walked down Eddie Sanchez, but because Eddie because he didn't know how to corner someone where all the angles weren't 90 degrees and were were smaller, it because it went from this to this. I mean, there's a straight line here, but you know what I mean. Like the angle went from 90 to wide open and the space was bigger. It became harder to have that kind of style. I believe that Mikko Krokop did not benefit from that use of that octagon. That impacted his ability to have the legacy that he was supposed to have, among other things. Um, so it's not just lighter weight guys either, although it's much more pronounced. As you mentioned, we have a flyweight fight with this massive octagon. I, I agree with you. I would like to see them shrink the cage. If it's not the optics reason, it must be something else. I'd like to know what it is. I'll look into it, but I would definitely, definitely like to know, and I feel like there's a big fan sentiment around the idea that those smaller cages are better for a product in the UFC, and I am inclined to agree. All right, before we get out of here, reminder, we are on iTunes, we are on Stitcher, and we are on SoundCloud. They're linked in this post. You have no reason to not go and get them. Go do that now. It'll be amazing. I know the fights this weekend are kind of nubs, but we'll be covering them just the same. There's a media day tomorrow, weigh-ins on Friday, fights on Saturday. Um, by the way, Technique Talk coming out on Monday. You're going to love it. And um, a bunch of good stuff. So follow me on Twitter at SBNLukeThomas. Email me at Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. And thank you for watching. Subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe on Stitcher. Follow on SoundCloud. Until next time, stay frosty.